Welcome to the Sadler Lectures podcast. Responding to popular demand, I'm converting my philosophy videos into sound files you can listen to anywhere you can take an MP3. If you like what you hear and want to support my work, go to patreon.com slash Sadler. I hope you enjoy this lecture. In his short essay, Art and Anti-Art, George Dickey is going to provide us with a way of understanding something that arises quite often within the field of art and also design and all the conversations surrounding it that, that we can call aesthetics in a very broad sense. This notion of anti-art is relatively new on the scene. There have been attempts to try to define art as a practice and a product going back millennia. As a matter of fact, that's one part of aesthetics, is it not? And within, say, the end of the 19th, the 20th century, and well into our current 21st century, there's been a lot of emphasis on subverting the conventions of art and producing something that would, as, as people like to say, push the envelope, get outside of the box, do something new. And creativity has been often framed as, as a central part of this. So by being creative, you go against what counts as art, you do something different. You know, we might think in music about the whole DIY and punk ethos that very quickly was assimilated right back into the music scene, but gives rise to garage bands every once in a while. And we could come up with all sorts of interesting examples. So Dickey is interested in this notion of anti-art and what its relation is with art. Now, he is going to frame this in terms of what he calls an institutional definition of art something that's a different theory than the earlier ones which tended to frame art in terms of imitation or representation. On the one hand, you might think about going all the way back to Plato and Republic Book 10 and all those discussions, or Aristotle and his discussion of mimesis and the poetics, all the way into the art as expression period, or art as something that would connect us together. And Dickey is going to take a, you might say, more sociological view on it, which views things as taking place through what he calls an art world, taking that term, as he mentions, from Arthur Danto. So what we have here is, he says, a focus on the social framework in which particular works are embedded and get to be called art. So what is this art world idea? I'm going to talk about this at greater length elsewhere in reference to some of his other writings. But here's the core that he summarizes here in this article. He says that it consists of a core of creators, presenters, and appreciators, which is then surrounded by critics, theorists, and philosophers of art. And it also includes all the machinery required to present works of art. So what are these three classes? of creators, presenters, and appreciators. Here's some examples. Painters, writers, actors, sculptors, anybody else who we're going to include. Presenters would be museum directors, gallery managers, to some degree musicians, actors, in a different sense, he says, than those above. We might also think about, you know, dual roles where somebody is a film director, right, as being part of that. And then finally, we have the appreciators, the people who actually go and consume the art and view it as art and probably play some 
some role in communicating their tastes to others, the museum goers, concert goers, theater goers. What is the apparatus required? He says museums, concert halls, art galleries, theaters, walls of houses. Uh, today we might extend this to a whole bevy of websites as well. For example, think about how artists have their works on Instagram as well as their own gallery page as well as maybe Pinterest or something like that. All of that is part of the art world. And he says critics are also part of that. Philosophers of art are also part of that. So it's a very wide framework. And we don't necessarily need to draw rigid lines and say, well, here is where the art world ends and here's where something else begins because it's not like that. It's more like a network. So this is going to help us in defining what's going on with anti-art. Now, the institutional definition of art basically says, what is art? Art is what the art world considers to be art, what the art world takes seriously enough to call art. And this is, you know, where we find rebuttals to the people who go into an art museum and they look at a Pollock painting and they're like, my kid could do that. <laughs> well, your kid's not Pollock, right? The art world doesn't deem what your kid does in splattering paint all around to be any art worth talking about. They might call it lowercase a art, but they take Pollock seriously. Similarly, when Cage has silence as part of a musical composition, that's not the same thing as you sitting in your garage not doing anything, right? Why? Because the art world in its not infinite wisdom, but whatever wisdom it possesses, has deemed one thing art and another thing not. So this idea has been around for quite a while, right? And you could see anti-art as a way of kind of, you know, thumbing your nose at these conventions of what counts as art and what doesn't count as art. And Dickey says, I'm going to talk about four main sorts of things that we can call anti-art. The expression itself, as he says, is both slippery and rubbery. Slippery, sometimes it means one thing and sometimes another. Distinguishing four different types of things will help with that. Rubbery, sometimes it and its opposite are predicated at the same time. So sometimes something is called a work of anti-art and it's also called a work of art. Again, his classification and analysis will help us understand that. So what are the four types? We have art in which chance plays a part. You might think about the automatic writing or, you know, people like dripping things randomly onto canvases or setting up a computer program to randomly punch holes in a card or anything along those lines. As a matter of fact, some of the things like, let's say I fill up my mouth with um, dye and I spit it out onto a t-shirt, right? And it's kind of random where, you know, my teeth and tongue and lips all determine where that splatter of yellow or green is going to go, right? And, and we, we say, okay, well, that's not the same thing as art. And the artist can say, yeah, I'm like subverting things, man. I'm going against the intentionality of art. I'm, I'm using randomness to do something here. Okay. There've been a lot of compositions done like that. Art which has, as he calls it, strikingly unusual content. This is a rather relative term, isn't it? Art that has strikingly unusual content. You know, if we depict figurative things that usually aren't looked at as being worthy of artistic representation, that's strikingly unusual content, until it's not, 
right? Or we might use different media. I'm going to do a drawing of ants, but I'm going to do it by using ink that is derived from grinding up ants. I guess that's unusual content. And we could come up with all sorts of examples of that as well. The idea there is that I'm doing something that goes beyond the normal in the art world and therefore it's anti-art. Then we have ready-mades. This is where somebody takes something, like for example, this tie, and puts it inside of a frame or on a wall and says, here you go. This is a work of art. Tie number 15 or red tie or let's call it oceans because that's evocative of something, right? And, and people have been doing this for, for quite a while, right? He brings up Marcel Duchamp, who famously would take things like urinals and put them in a museum and say, aha, work of art, right? Is that a work of art or is it a work of anti-art? Is he sort of thumbing his nose at the art establishment by doing so? Then we have actions that are done by artists. And he's got this great example here of the New York artist Vito Acconci, who periodically notifies the art world by mail that on certain dates he will mount a stool in his studio X number of times and that this work may be viewed at the designated hours. He also did other works in quotes, like counting his pulse beats and moving the contents of his apartment to an art gallery. You know, we might think of taking the video of somebody picking their nose. If they're an artist and they say, oh, this is performance art, right? And this is easily recognizable to us now in the 21st century as something that's been done many, many times, right? But it was conceived of as being anti-art as doing something different than creating a painting. And, and artists are continually trying to push the envelope in new media. As a matter of fact, we just watched a old episode of House in which there was a performance artist who is making a performance out of her medical diagnosis and all of that. And you, you know, you can do any sort of thing along those lines. You say, that's anti-art. Now, Dickey goes on and he says that the first two kinds of anti-art, works which employ chance and works with bizarre content raise no theoretical problems. They're easily assimilated developments within art, so they're easy to suck back in. And, you know, you let a decade pass, and what was the revolutionary anti-art of the past, people are like, oh, oh yes, I've, I've seen that all before. That's so 1994. Now we're on to this. Right? Whether it be art in which chance plays a part or art that has strikingly unusual content. Ready-mades present a somewhat different and more rich problem. He goes on and he says that with them something strange has happened. How can a ready-made, which certainly seems entitled to the label anti-art because it's senseless to contemplate it, nevertheless be a work of art? The answer has reference to the institutional definition of art. He says that Duchamp's ready-mades acquired the status of art because of his declarations. Now here he makes a differentiation. His non-public behind-the-hand stressings to his chuckling cohorts that his ready-mades were not art had no effect. The large public was willing to say, well, I don't quite understand this, but I guess it's in a museum, so I guess it's art. 
Everybody else, you know, who was in the joke, right? They were like, oh, no, no, look at these stupid people. They think that this is art. And eventually it becomes art. And there's kind of an interesting dynamic here where things that are being presented in this ready-made fashion as like found objects quickly just become another genre of art that we recognize as art and art that's only important because it's, it's within the institutional structure. He says that the relation of his public declaration to his private stressings is rather like the relation of testimony under oath to gossip under the gatepost. It's a testimony that actually counts. What about the fourth type of anti-art? Here this has a bit of a better candidacy to remain anti-art. He says, let's consider the anti-art of Aconchi and friends. These artists go Duchamp one better. They perform an action and make a declaration, but they don't produce, that is, end up with an object which in any way resembles traditional paintings or sculptures. So they may end up with a video, or they may end up with the only thing that's left behind being a postcard, or the costume that they wore, or something along those lines. And then that is placed within a museum kind context or put online or whatever it's going to be, maybe retained only in our minds. So he says, the only thing left to do is for an artist, let's call him zero, to make a declaration and not do anything. Now here's where it gets really interesting in terms of analysis. This is what Dickey says. Aconchi is exercising the machinery of the art world and conferring the status of art on something which is radically different from traditional paintings and sculptures and even radically different from ready-mades. What is he doing here? He calls this a mere exercising of the machinery of the art world. He's using the art world's machinery of museums and art history classes and blogs about art and all these sorts of things to make something that we wouldn't normally think of as art into anti-art that also becomes art. So he goes on and he says that Aconchi's art is real anti-art. Why? Art because they use the framework of the art world anti because they do nothing with it. They don't actually produce something that we can easily recognize as being art. And so if there's any subversion taking place, that seems to be where it's really happening. Ready-mades aren't as subversive as people think they are. Or, you know, doing strange content is not really that subversive, nor is letting chance decide. All of that can be easily sucked right back into the art world. It's a little bit tougher, according to Dickey, with these actions by artists that are turned into art. I don't know if that's still the case today. Maybe we've had enough of performance art and its publicization. You know, I mentioned television show playing around with that as part of its plot for an episode. Maybe if you're doing that, it no longer can resist being sucked back into the notion of art. So that's something to consider as we end with thinking about this question that Dickey, I think, has illuminated quite well for us. What is anti-art? Special thanks to all of my Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible. You can find me on Twitter at Philosopher70, on YouTube at the Gregory B. Sadler channel, and on Facebook on the Gregory B. Sadler page. Once again, to support my work, go to patreon.com Sadler. Above all, keep studying these great philosophical works. <laughs>